Well, if you want to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that's where we're going to be this morning. It's really good to see all of you here, and for all of you joining us online, it's always a privilege for us to be able to gather together, whether in person or through technology, to worship God, to pray, to sing, and to study His Word. Ever since the invention of the railroad, uh, it has played a huge role in the development of civilization. You may not know this, but railroads actually, from what we can tell, have its origins all the way back to 600 BC. We actually have ruins of a railway uh, outside of Corinth, uh, where they actually used these rails and carts to actually take boats from one, uh, one body of water and cross an isthmus. And every civilization has benefited from railroads, especially the United States, when you consider all that has taken place in the development through travel and work and transportation of goods through a railway. All you need is a continuous pair of steel rails fastened together, moving in one continuous direction. However, if you have one of those rails that's off or damaged or missing, well, you're going to have a significant problem. And that is especially true like during wartime. One of the great tactics that is used in war is sabotage to actually destroy uh, supply lines. And we see this, perhaps one of the most iconic images of this is the war between the states. And we actually had uh, Major General William Tecumseh Sherman, his men during the Civil War would try to sabotage the South's railways. And what they would do is they would take one of those rails, heat it up to make it malleable, and then they would twist it and bend it around a tree. They referred to these as Sherman's neckties. South, of course, returned the favor, and they did the exact same thing, taking metal and steel rails, bending them, contorting them, twisting them around trees, and they referred to them as old Mrs. Lincoln's hairpins. And once they had twisted them like that and bent them around, uh, they really couldn't actually straighten them out to make them work again. And it proved to be very disruptive. I tell you this because the same is true in the church. If a church is going to thrive, it has to be running on two parallel rails. In fact, if anyone is missing or if it's damaged, you're, you're going to have some problems. And those two essential rails are found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, verses 5 through 8. These are two key characteristics. If they are not present in a church, the church will not thrive. You can try to reinvent yourself and become maybe like a little Christian club or whatever, but a church that is going to thrive and fulfill God's purposes of what Jesus intended and when he said, I will build my church, has to have these two rails. And I'll tell you, the enemy of our souls, the enemy of righteousness, the enemy of all churches is looking to create disruption to take these rails and to twist them and to make them absolutely not usable. So churches on track and those that thrive, first of all, like we're going to see in verse 5, it's, that takes place when our personal faith goes public, when our personal faith in Christ goes public. Take a look here, verse 5. 
He says, Paul writes, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You see, when Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, when they came to Thessalonica, they put the gospel on display through their lives. You see, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, through his perfect life, his work on the cross, and his resurrection can give forgiveness of the penalty of sin, which is death because he died in our place, and give you life in the context of relationship with him. It's good news because you not only have the blessings of forgiveness of sin, which you could never earn, but you also have the relationship that comes by having relationship with Christ. And he says, our gospel didn't just come with words. It certainly came with words. They told them about relationship with God. They told them about the good news of all that Christ has accomplished and the blessings of relationship. But it came with much more than words. It came with their life. Do you see that? It didn't come with word only, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit. Our words, our words of the gospel came to you with our lives. Remember, that's exactly what was foretold, like Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus said, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to give you my Holy Spirit. In fact, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. My Spirit will empower you. My spirit will work through your lives and your words, and it is my spirit that will bring about the changes. You see, the power isn't the person. We sometimes think, well, maybe Paul and these guys were just really winsome folks, and they had great personalities, and they were just strong leaders, and so when they spoke, people just kind of listened and and fell in line. That doesn't seem to be the case. The reality is the power isn't the individual. The power is God And he actually gives his spirit. And he says, you know what kind of people we are. We came in full conviction. We came with the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Just as you saw what kind of men we proved to be among you. You see, it's the spirit of God that takes the word and brings transformation through lives. And he says, you saw it. Our personal faith, we went public with it. We served you. We entered engaged in spiritual conversations. We talked about the life matters of who God is, how we know he exists. We talked about sin. We talked about heaven. We talked about hell. We talked about Christ, salvation, eternity, strength, real relationship with God. And you saw it modeled in our life. Notice how he says, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. For your sake. They knew the power of the gospel and what relationship with Christ really looks like. Do you know why? They saw it lived out. And you're saying, well, what what did that look like? What does it look like when your personal faith goes public? Well, you just take a look at chapter 2, like verses 1 through 12, and he actually spells it out. This is what it looks like. You see that we were truthful. Because of our relationship with Christ, we had humility. We were selfless, gentle, caring, passionate, compassionate, 
We were service-oriented. We cared about you. We poured out our lives for you. We were unashamed of the gospel. We spoke truth. We didn't walk in fear. We moved forward in faith. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you. And that's how the church thrives and moves forward. When it has this rail where your personal faith in Christ goes public. So for instance, like missionaries, both here in the United States and abroad, that's how it works. You live out your life among the lost and they see what relationship with Christ looks like through your life. As you express care, you build bridges of trust, you enter into spiritual conversations and are able to articulate the gospel. And people see and observe and they're watching your life. And by the way, you are either a missionary or a mission field. If you are one who truly knows Christ, you are his emissary, his missionary. You represent him to a watching world. And we share the gospel not only with our lips, but with our lives. We speak with our life what it means to have relationship with Christ. Your life is your primary platform for proclamation. And when you're living out your faith, guess what? You're going to have opportunities to share your faith. And oftentimes you're going to find that what happens is Your life provides an example for others to see this is what it looks like to know Christ. Not that you're perfect, far from it, but your faith is in a perfect Savior. And this has always been God's divine design, that his people will live out their faith. For instance, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says this, Let no one look down upon your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, Love, faith, and purity show yourself an example of those who believe. In your life, let them see Christ in all manners. In your love, faith, conduct, purity, you show them what it means to believe. In what people think of Christianity, you know what? It's really oftentimes what they think of you. Because you and I basically send the signals of what it means to know Jesus. I know that that was the case for me prior to knowing Christ. Like in high school, I saw two people that identified with Christ. They were genuine believers. Much of what I thought about actual, genuine, personal relationship with God, genuine Christianity, came from watching them. And then more so in college, when I started observing even more Christians. You're, you're looking, and you know this, you're looking and see like, well, okay, what is their lifestyle? What are their morals? What are their entertainment choices? What are their ethics, their priorities? What do their relationships look like? How serious are they about God? Are, does, does love feature in their, in their lives? Are they caring? Or are they just cold? Does anything about their relationship with God actually influence how they go about whether their work or their school? Are they hardworking? Or they're lazy. Because what you're trying to do, you're, you're reading. I will tell you this. When I was a non-believer, I found genuine Christian faith contagious. They, they had something I didn't. 
You see, their personal faith, it was going public. And friends, it makes a huge difference. Authentic Christianity is contagious Christianity. I mean, think of your own life. Did you not see the gospel being lived out, whether through a parent or maybe one of your somebody at church, maybe one of your leaders, maybe a pastor, maybe a coworker, uh, a fellow student? Didn't you see Christ being put on display in their lives? Friends, that is how the church moves forward. You know, our faith in Christ is deeply personal but it was never intended to be private. Our faith in Christ is deeply personal. It's the most intimate, most important aspect of our entire lives because it is our life, but it was never meant to be private. So how does our personal faith in Christ actually go public? What, would that, what does that look like? Well, you see that right there in verse 5. It all starts with actually identifying with Jesus. Instead of going the incognito route, you know, and you're just like, I'm not going to say anything. I mean, we have pretty much silenced most Christians by just saying, hey, there's just two things you just never talk about. You guys know what they are, don't you? Yeah. Well, you don't talk about religion or uh, politics. Just, just don't say anything, right? Who came up with that? Did God? Huh. No. He wants us to identify with him. When our personal faith, it goes public when we're willing to identify with him. It also goes public when we model integrity because of our relationship with Christ. When it shows up in our consistency of life practices, our morals, our honesty. When integrity, because of our relationship with Christ, it shows up. What it is is that you're actually going public with your personal faith. And one other, when you take the initiative to invest in others, when your relationship with Jesus moves you to a place where you're on that pathway of, of growing in grace, where you start serving, where you're willing to invest in others. Now, friends, it's not an issue of perfection. No one's perfect, right, except Jesus. But it is an issue of direction. And a church that is thriving is, has that first rail where their personal faith is going public. I'd just like to ask you, are you public with your personal faith in Christ? If you answer that question, yes, I, as a follower of Jesus, I'm actually known as a follower of Jesus, I'd like to have you answer that question, why? Why is it? What has taken place in your life where God has moved you to a place where you're willing and openly identify with him, whether in your school or at work, in your neighborhood, where uh, you gather in our church and you're like, you're willing to serve and taking those steps of investment? What What has God done? But if the answer to that question is, are you identifying with Jesus? Are you known as a follower of Jesus? And you say, uh, no then you need to ask the question, well, why is that? A church thrives and it's on track when it has two rails. And the first one is when our personal faith in Christ goes public. But the second is found in verses 6 through 8, and that is when those being invested in influence others. 
When you begin there in verse 6 here, what you're going to see is discipleship put on display. Do you know what discipleship is? Remember our definition? Discipleship is this. It is the intentional and relational process of maturing Christ-centered believers and mobilizing them for ministry. It's intentional. It's relational. It's a process. You're helping people grow and develop and mature in their relationship with Christ, and you are mobilizing them, giving them opportunities, training, equipping them so that they can actually be about the work of the kingdom. That is, by the way, what Jesus called us to do. He said, I am sending you out to make what? Disciples of all the nations. What is that? Exactly what you see taking place here. He says, verse 6, And you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You became imitators of us. We actually get from this Greek word our word mimic. You actually followed the pattern, what you saw in us. Now, isn't that interesting? You would have thought he would have written like, well, in what you see in the Lord and also saw in us. But how does it read? Verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And that's because their first introduction to the Lord Jesus Christ, it came through his people. It almost always does. You and I represent him. And I'll tell you, that might give you some pause. I mean, I can think of a lot of times where I don't think I gave the best example of what it means to know Christ. That's a pretty big responsibility. It makes me a big believer in the gospel, right? In fact, even my shortcomings and my faith in Christ for my need for a Savior, for salvation, for life, forgiveness and the ability to move forward by faith, all of that is a manifestation of the gospel and the power of Christ. And so even our weaknesses and even our failures can be used by God to show the importance and the reality of relationship with Christ. You see, we're just a work in progress. And what Paul is highlighting here is how discipleship moves forward. Now, Here in Western civilization, when we think of instruction, it's primarily, okay, well, somebody dumps some data, we get information, we get instruction, we take it, leave it, we try to synthesize it, use it for whatever we need it for. But instruction, uh, especially among the Jewish people, but really all when you look at the ancient world and how they train people, they certainly had instruction, teaching, but it was far more than that. It was oftentimes in the context of relationship. You were not only informed, but you were also involved, and you would imitate, you would learn. And that's what he's highlighting here. It's just like newborn babies start growing up in a home, and they start following the patterns of their parents. This accentuates the need of a local church, because you've got newborn believers And how do they grow? They grow in relationship with other believers, and we're all united in Christ. We're maturing. He says, you, first of all, you imitated us, but you also imitated the Lord. Remember, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You and I, when we believe the gospel, we're called into relationship with Christ, not just the blessings of forgiveness, but the blessings of relationship with him 
where he shapes us and trains us and forms us and fashions us. And how does he do that? How does the living God, whom we cannot see, shape and train and mature his people? Well, you see it right here. You see it in verse 6? You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having, here it is, received the word. God uses his spirit, the Holy Spirit, and his word to bring development of his people. And what is this book we call the Bible? Is it just a bunch of religious writings, some words that we just call scriptures, and we kind of have this collection and hopefully find some inspiration from it? No. Actually, if you want to know the answer to that question, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Just look at the next chapter. What is this word that they received? He says, verse 13, chapter 2, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, and accept, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it truly is, the word of God, which does its work in you who believe. When you take those scriptures and realize that they are from God, you're not relegating them as just some fine literature, but actually God's word, his truth, guess what happens? God does his work in your life. And he says, you did that. Going back to chapter 1, verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word, your dependence and trust upon God's word, but you did so in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, instruction is always incomplete until it's implemented in your life. But when you implement God's word into your life, I want you to know you are going to face adversity, just like they did. They received it in much tribulation. And this actually speaks of like a great emotional, like spiritual stress. This is some sort of mild inconvenience. They faced hostility, challenge, great adversity, difficulty for trusting in Christ and his word. So what kind of tribulation would they maybe uh, actually receive? Well, for instance, if you came from a Jewish background and a Jewish family, and you're now believing that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one who has been promised in the Old Testament, the one who will be perfect and pay the penalty for sin and truly be alive, who is the eternal son of God, the eternal king of David in that line, if you are saying that Jesus is that guy, I want you to know for all the unbelieving Jews, you're going to be met with a lot of hostility. You're going to be seen as forsaking the family. You're going to be run off. They're going to cut you off because of your faith in Christ. And you're like, okay, well, I'm kind of familiar with that coming from a Jewish background. That makes sense. But how in the world would that? Let's say you're just a bunch of pagan Gentiles, and that's where Thessalonica is. I mean, it's, it's the capital of Macedonia. It's kind of in like modern-day Greece in the northern part there. How would they face adversity, tribulation, and trial? Well, let me tell you, if you had been a Gentile and you're now trusting in Christ, I want you to know you are now perceived as someone that is going against the swift current of culture and their paganism. You see, the, the pagans, the, the, the Romans, actually had adopted the Greek gods and they changed their names, but they were basically the same old stories. 
And they saw that you had to, and this was all part of their ancestral tradition, that you had to appease these man-made gods. By the way, Thessalonica is only located about 50 miles away from Mount Olympus, where they believed all these gods lived. And the idea was that you had to appease these gods, and they were mean, unpredictable, but you had to do everything you could to kind of keep them happy. Because they believe that these gods provided for civic peace, for agricultural process, and freedom from catastrophe. So that is the mindset. you got to follow our culture. If you're like saying, you know what? Those aren't the true gods. The one true God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, he's the eternal Son of God. He's actually God. Well, I want you to know that was going to be met with great resistance. You were seen as causing the problems if there was agricultural, like drought, or things weren't well in society, or there were other problems, like some sort of natural disaster. When they're looking to pin someone like, like, why did this happen? If you're a Christian, and you're not bound down to all these pagan gods, and you're not following the cultural practices and the norms, you have stepped out of line, they're going to pin it on you. And so when Paul writes... You received the word in much tribulation. Friends, this was real tribulation. And, you know, it shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said the same thing. John chapter 16, verse 33. Remember that? He says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. If you just go with the world, you stay in the culture, you're not going to have the tribulation of going against the grain of the culture because you're floating right along. But if you have truly come to Christ, you see your need for salvation, you see yourself as a sinner, you're trusting in Christ and forgiveness, and you're following him, you are going against the grain of culture, and there are going to be some consequences. And they experienced it. And yet, there was joy. You know, it's hard for us to relate to these, you know, tribulations, right? Following Jesus. The closest that we probably could do is to understand, like, like someone that comes from a Hindu background or a Muslim background, and they trust in Christ, and they're going to face heat, rejection, alienation, perhaps torture, being seized and abused, lose your place in society, lose your job, lose your business or maybe even death itself. You know, like countries like North Korea, you even get caught with a page of Scripture of the Bible. You're going to one of their camps, and not only you, your entire extended family. And yet, in the midst of this, there was joy. If you don't think that, um, well, tribulation isn't, that's for other people and other times and other cultures, I want you to get ready. The heat is being turned up against Christ, against Christianity, and against those who will follow him. But I want you to learn that you and I can have joy even in the midst of tribulation. When we'll hold fast to the word, we might take some heat for it. We're going to go against the grain of the culture, and it's going to become apparent. Guess what? We can have joy in the Holy Spirit. It's very interesting. The New Testament presents joy 
as independent of circumstances. So often we think of joy as what? Well, if everything's kind of lined up and it's going the way I want it, I can have what? Joy, and I can be happy, right? But joy is sourced not in circumstances. True joy, the joy that God gives, it's sourced in Christ himself, in relationship with the living God. And so don't get thrown off by the difficulties and challenges. John Ortberg writes this, that God doesn't always erase all our stress and pain before it starts. Instead, God can use the failures, disappointments, and periods of suffering to help us grow. And listen to this. He says, God isn't at work producing the circumstances I want. God is at work in bad circumstances to produce the me he wants. And that's what was happening with them. It's what's happening with us. And so he writes in verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. God was providing joy through the Holy Spirit. That's the second time the Holy Spirit is referenced. This isn't something you can manufacture. It comes from God. It is spiritual. It can't be fully explained. It's certainly not related to your circumstances. It's related to the Spirit of God who resides in you. You've got joy despite the fact that you've got trials and tribulations. And he says you became an example. This word was used of like a seal that was put into wax or like a stamp that minted coins. What they did is they put that stamp there and they could reproduce it on the metal so you'd have like a coin like this. I want you to know what he's telling them is that you have become an example. An example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia and the north, Achaia and the south. And like you're saying, well, like, okay, think of modern-day Greece, okay? Let me tell you the kind of cities they were influencing. These would include cities like Philippi, Athens, Corinth. And you're saying, well, what, what happened? Like, how did they have become so influential? You mean these investments that were being made, how did this rail develop where they're starting to influence others? It's interesting that, like in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, these believers are featured. In chapter 8, verses like 1 through 5, these believers in Macedonia and Thessalonica, they're highlighted because of their willingness to give of their financial resources to the furthering of God's kingdom work. Not because they were rich, in fact, because they were actually poor. In fact, Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3 and through 5. He says, For I testify, you, testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Can you imagine? Have you ever seen anybody like begging to participate in this? He says, that was them. And he says, and this, not as we expected, but what would move someone to behave that way? He says, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. You first give yourself to the Lord, and then let's see what God is going to do. They were leaving their mark. They were an example. This is, by the way, what parents do with their children and grandparents. We are impressing upon them. We are showing them the way to go, the reality of God, the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
We are loving them, nurturing them. We are engaging in conversations. We are giving them the imprint of Christ. But God has to change their heart. You can't do that. That's why the Holy Spirit must work. But he does. And that's what takes place in college campuses and schools in our community where you have actual believers. They're going public with their faith. They're investing in others. And guess what? Those people are investing in others as well. When discipleship takes place like this, guess what? A church thrives. He says, that's what's happening in Thessalonica. In fact, verse 8, for the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. He says, The word has gone forth, sounded forth. It was used in ancient Greek literature to speak of like a trumpet blaring or the rolling of thunder. It's actually where we get our word echo. Your lives in Christ, your relationship together as a church, it was reverberating through the empire. And you're saying, well, what, what exactly did people see? What were they talking about? It's like we saw last week. They were a thriving church. They had the signs of life. Verse 3, they had a faith that works. They were willing to labor in their love, and they were steadfast in their hope. And friends, Paul is saying, we didn't have to tell people about what God was doing in Thessalonica. We had this experience. They were telling us. God was at work in their midst. And friends, the same is true for us. When we're traveling on those two rails, when we have our personal faith going public, and when those that we're investing in begin to influence others, a church thrives. And so we have to ask ourselves, is this where we are at? You can't depart from these rails. In fact, if you do, The church doesn't thrive. So are you, at this point, actually public with your personal faith? For the investments that have been made in you, whether through preaching or your women's or men's groups or life group or uh, as in a student ministry or a college group, are those investments leading you to start influencing others? I want to give you the railway ruiners. I want you to know how the enemy is going to seek to distort, twist, and destroy progress in any church, in our church. Let me give you the railway runners to get you off track. These are the devil's perhaps most potent tools. First one is distraction. It's anything or anyone that'll keep Christ from being the center of your life where you're getting sidetracked on side issues, whether it be like a singular focus on politics or you're just so given to your work that you can just never emerge, it's all about your work, or on the flip side of it, you're just so enamored by entertainment and it's just really kind of like one one entertainment uh, piece to another. It's just that is what you live for. When you are distracted, it's like the rail gets twisted. Something's not right. Let me give you another railway runer. Discouragement. When we lose courage and confidence and enthusiasm, life seems heavy, hopeless, hard, fatigue, frustration, failure, fear, and you just kind of get discouraged. It's just like, that's exactly what Satan wants to do. 
the more discouraged you can be, the better. It's like a twisting. And that really kind of leads to a third ruiner of a railway, and that is disengagement, where you just give up. You go passive. You drop out. You separate from other believers. You stop being involved in a local church. You're just like, I don't need that. I don't need... I can just do this on my own, right? You have missed what it means to be in the body of Christ. Christ has called you into relationship with himself and his people. But if you are disengaged, it's kind of like a piece of rail missing on the railway. Something is obviously missing, and the train isn't going to travel like it was intended to because you've disengaged. And let me give you, you know, one other. Deception. When you begin to believe that which is not true, whether it's bad theology or you get caught up in some sort of misguided movement or you start developing patterns of lying and deceiving yourself or you get deceived by the allurements of sin and they are so enamoring and they'll own you, whether it be immorality or pride or greed, they will twist and contort you and they are railway ruiners and Satan is really good. In fact, your whole ability to think and process will be distorted if you buy into these kind of lies. And let me give you just one other final railway ruiner, disbelief. Satan knows that if you're truly a follower of Christ, that you really know him, you're truly experiencing salvation, he can't take your eternal life. But what he's trying to do is get you to a place where you will not trust God and you will not trust his word. He can't rob you of eternal life, but he can certainly take your joy and your peace, and he can render you basically ineffective. And it has effects not just in your life, in the life of a church, because if a church is to thrive, it's got to run on these two rails. Perhaps this week um, you watched Alabama win the national uh, championship, college football. For Nick Saban, it was his seventh national championship. It was the only other time where he had an undefeated team, went through the entire never losing. It was interesting watching the game. Kirk Herbstreet, one of the announcers, spoke of Alabama and the culture that they have, a culture of, of winning. And he says, like, even the players that were injured had targeted to make sure that they were well enough to be able to play for this game. It was No one was holding back like, well, I don't want to play because I don't want to get injured or anything. I'm thinking about other things. They were all in it to win. He said it's part of their culture. In fact, there was a guy playing, and I mean, he looked injured to me. He shouldn't have been playing, but he had been trying to get well enough to actually get out onto the field. Uh, after the game, in an interview, Nick Saban, he said that this really wasn't his most talented team overall, but this is then what he followed up by saying. He says, this was kind of the ultimate team. He said, these guys are like high, a high school team in terms of how they got along together. And so he's talked about like how, how, much, how important it was that they were together and they cared for each other and they were for each other. They recognized we need each other. And he went on to say, and how they not only got along, but how they supported each other and how they played together and how they overcame adversity. And friends, the same could be said to a church that is thriving. We care for each other. We care for the souls of everyone. We want you thriving because you need to understand your life is your ministry and 
your spiritual health affects all of us. And if you get derailed, it affects a church. And so we care, we support one another, we help each other. And friends, we go through adversity and we do so together. You see, churches thrive when Christ's disciple-making ministry is alive. And so I just want to ask, are you an enthusiastic Christian? Are you, do you have a fire and a passion for Jesus Christ and his kingdom? You know, when we see railroad tracks from time to time, let's just ask these two questions. Am I on track? Ask it personally. You know, am I on track? And two, ask, is our church on track? You're going to find this. Our church will continue to thrive when our personal faith in Christ goes public and when those we are investing in begin to influence others. Churches thrive when Christ's disciple-making ministry is alive. Let's pray.